Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 25. Wouldn't it be nice to use a form of version control, but for data? Something that would allow you to track and version your data sets and models. Well, that's what the tool called DVC is designed to do. This week on the show, David Amos is here, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. David starts with a Real Python article titled Data Version Control with Python and DVC. We also cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including where to get exposure to well-written code, delegation, composition, and inheritance, good Python project ideas for high school students, never running Python in your downloads folder, and more. We also have a special guest this week. I talked to Sadie Parker, who recently joined the RealPython team to help create and edit transcripts for all the RealPython video courses. We talk about how you can take advantage of all the features this new resource provides. Sadie also discusses how she uses Python to speed up and simplify the editing process. The transcripts and closed captions are now live on the website for all new courses, and we're working our way through the back catalog. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome back. Hey, good to be back. All right. So, you cool with starting off this week with your first topic? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so I've got a real Python article by Christian Ivanchik. Hopefully, I pronounced his name correctly. Christian has done a couple of articles. I'm not sure if this is his second article or third article for us now, but uh, he had about a year or so since the last one. So this is he's come back and written this uh, excellent article for us on data version control with Python and DVC, and it's a really cool project. This uh, DVC, which stands for data version control. So data ver- version control is a concept, right? Controlling ver- version control for your data. DVC is the project name. Okay. It's written in Python. It's a, it's a Python. It's sort of like Git for data. Hmm. And it's really, really cool. I think it solves a really, a really interesting problem that I think a lot of people run into. I think that it's not uncommon for people, data scientists, people working in academia to have your spreadsheets and your data just kind of all over the place. And, you know, you, you have some weird version control of, you know, maybe underscore date, whatever, some number at the end of, of your files, and you just kind of keep track of them uh, that way. And it's a difficult way to sort of keep track of versions of, of your data set. You could use Git already to version control things, especially if you're working with like text files and Things that are small, right? <laughs> and things that are small. Yeah. yeah. If it's a small data set, then, you know, Git can kind of take care of that for you. But as you start getting into the realm of larger and larger data sets, Git becomes troublesome for that. And it can be difficult to, to deal with that. So what DBC does is solve that problem. If you have a large data set that you need to keep track of, then DBC is an excellent choice for that. So Christian walks you through setting up a working environment using DVC and everything. And and he walks through the workflow and kind of compares it to Git. And there's a lot of, I guess, crossover there. There's there's a lot of similarities between DVC and, and Git. So for example, you can initialize a repository for DVC using DVC init, sort of like the Git init. And that you know sets a few things, uh, sets a few things up for you. So it creates a .dvc folder that holds all the configuration information. So this is just like the .git folder that Git does. And it sets up the, the repository for using the DVC. You can add data to a cache. So it, it works on like a like you have a local cache, basically, and then you would have like a remote file storage system. And the remote could be, could be another folder on the same machine, or it could be an S3 bucket, or it could be just, you know, anywhere, really. I mean, it's, it's compatible with almost anything. You have some remote storage and a local cache. So that, again, that's very similar to the way Git works. But uh, you've got a DVC add command that adds things to your local cache, sort of like 
Git add. It's kind of analogous uh, to that. Although it does, it's, it's not quite the same. That DVC add does a little bit more. It, it not only says, hey, we need to track changes on, on this file. You, you add some file using you know, DVC add and then file name or folder name or whatever. It says, okay, we're going to track changes on this, but it also puts it into that, that local cache for you already. So that's a little bit more than what uh, git add uh, might do. Uh, then there's a dvc commit command, which is like git commit. If you have new changes to a tracked file, you commit those to your local cache. And then there's a dvc push to push whatever's in your cache to the, uh, to the remote storage. And then on the, you know, on the pooling side, getting data from remote storage, you've got a checkout command, a fetch command, a pool command that does like a fetch and then a checkout. So there's a lot of similarities between DVC yeah. and Git. Yeah, it's really targeted towards large data sets that need to have uh, the data uh, version controlled. And uh, it just integrates really nicely with with existing kind of Git workflows and everything. So Christian walk, walks you through this whole workflow using sort of a pet project. Um, so you build a, a machine learning model it's nothing fancy, honestly. You know, he's he's just kind of got the the code there for you. It's not, you know, the model itself is not the point of the article, so it's really not trying to yeah. do anything fancy or get great accuracy or anything like that. It's just, you know, kind of a quick and dirty thing to kind of get you going. Uh, but you've got an actual file that you can work with, and or an actual model that you can work with. You work on training it, and then evaluating the performance, and then getting that model and the data into uh, version control. And he goes through some interesting ideas on you know, how, you, how you might work this in with, with a Git workflow. So for example, when you have a machine learning model, you do a bunch of like experiments. And the experiments might use different training data or maybe a different split or maybe just you know, different things that, that you want on the experiment, maybe a whole different data set. So he talks about one way you might do this is have different branches in Git per experiment. So he kind of walks you through a, a way to integrate all this with your, your Git workflow and, and have something that uh, is easy to reproduce and share with people. He takes a deep dive into something called DBC files, which those are the text files that actually get committed to your Git repository. So your GitHub or GitLab or Bitbucket, whatever you're, whatever you're using. But these little DBC files contain like a pointer to the remote storage uh, for your data. So instead of having to commit that large data, you're just committing this little tiny, little tiny text file that has like a hash in it and, you know, some other information. And then another really cool thing about DVC really goes beyond the Git analogy is you can create these reproducible pipelines with it. So you can set up like the, what needs to happen for fetching the data, what needs to happen for preparing the data, what needs to happen for running the training and then evaluating that training run, and you can stage all this stuff in a pipeline and use a DBC run command to run that pipeline. And and then it's reproducible. The whole workflow is reproducible for everyone on your team or whoever you're uh, you're sharing this with. So that's a really powerful feature that uh, that's really cool. So the article just, yeah, it walks you through all of this. Christian is a talented writer. I think he has a gift for explaining things really well. It's just a really enjoyable article to read. If you're in the data space, I definitely recommend checking this out. I, I'm really kind of excited by the idea of it, the, especially the branching for your data. That sounds like that would be really helpful. Yeah. Especially, you know, with <laughs> a lot of the data science kind of things where you you are trying different experiments or you're you're shifting from training data to other data and so forth. Yeah, exactly. All right. So my first one is a Reddit thread. It's titled uh, Expanding Exposure to Good Code. And it's sort of this idea of like, you know, where can you go out there to find well-written code and, and kind of learn from reading code? And this has been an ongoing topic that I've asked as a repeating question on the, on the podcast. But this kind of goes a little bit further beyond necessarily going into reading Git repositories, um, which we've suggested in the past. It has a bunch of other resources that people suggested that kind of went in slightly different direction instead of saying, oh, go read the Flask documentation or go read you know, the source code off GitHub. And they mentioned some some resources that I wasn't familiar with. One is called Python Module of the Week, which I thought was kind of neat. Which oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it goes into depth on you know individual modules and kind of lets you kind of focus your attention. Like, okay, this you know, and again, you can kind of pick and choose because it's been been going on for quite a while. You know, subjects that you're interested in, and you can kind of use it as a checklist to kind of continue to build on your learning. There's a 
an algorithms implemented in Python Git repository that I think is really kind of neat too. One that I think I've heard before mentioned on a different podcasts, probably Python Bytes, but it was something called Awesome Python Applications. Oh, yeah. Another GitHub uh, repository. And this one is is talking about actual applications that are out there in the world where the source code you know, it's something where you can go and read it and they're organized by the type of application. So it could be, you know, an audio player or a game or some kind of other web resource and so forth where you can kind of learn, you know, how did they structure this type of code for an existing, you know, thing that's out there. And and it's a really neat way to see not only, you know, I guess one of those awesome lists, you know, of like, okay, this is, these were created in Python and kind of give you an idea of what, what's happening with it. Yeah, that's a really cool repo. I think the Talk Python to Me podcast actually had the author of that repo okay. on to discuss that. So there's a there's a whole podcast episode that goes into talks it. Talks about some of some of the different projects. Yeah. But um yeah. it's probably grown since then. So I, that's a fantastic resource for sure. Yeah. So again, wanting to go and read and f- learn from them. And then somebody else mentioned a, a YouTube video, which I, I started watching this morning just to kind of give heads up as I'm getting prepared for us to talk today. And the YouTube video is by James Powell. It's from 2017 um, PyData conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's titled, So You Want to Be a Python Expert. And it starts off in a really interesting way, diving into sort of explaining Dunder methods and you know that kind of functionality. And it's done in a, a really well-structured way. He doesn't have any slides or you know anything. He's kind of working from memory as he's going through this list of okay, as you create a class, you know what does this class need to do and and, and so forth. And it it's really well presented and it's almost two hours long. I didn't go all, all the way through it, but I'm excited to watch wow. the rest of it. So I think it'll be yeah. a, a good resource to kind of again kind of take a different angle on the way uh, of thinking of you know how to learn Python. He was. He initially complained that he feels like a lot of books that are out there uh, say, "Oh, you know, here's here's something that you know that uh, is a fu- feature of Python, you know." And then they go, "And here's another, you know, feature of Python. Here's another one, and so forth." But doesn't ever really get into the thinking that goes behind, in this case, this idea of data classes and and how that relates to all these dunder methods that, you know, some people think of like magical methods for these things. But if you're creating and using object oriented programming and creating these things, it's kind of vital to kind of think in this different way as you're creating them. And I felt like even within 20 minutes of me diving into it, that I was like, Oh, okay, this is really tying together a lot of different thought processes, you know, as I've been sort of immersing myself further and further into Python, uh, it was, I think it'll be really useful for, for a lot of people that are in that kind of intermediate stage. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So what's your next one? Yeah, the next article I've got is by Leonardo Giordani, and it's about uh, object-oriented programming in Python, specifically the topic of delegation. Before I talk about it, though, I want to kind of go back. This He's got this whole series on object-oriented programming in Python that I think is is really well done. It, it goes into a lot of depth, and it's also very approachable. I think he's got really good examples that he uses in the articles. They're They're very short to the point and sort of easy to digest which is enormously helpful when you're trying to learn something like object-oriented programming because it, it, can, be, it can be a lot to take in at first if you're kind of new to this whole uh, concept. So having very concise, short examples is really uh, helpful. But there's three pillars to object-oriented programming that he's going to expand on on this whole series, and that is data encapsulation, delegation, and polymorphism. The article that we featured in, in PyCoders recently and that we're talking about today is on, on delegation. And it specifically talks about how you sort of assign tasks. You need that, I mean, that's kind of what the word dele- delegation is, right? Like delegating sure. something to uh, something else. So it deals with these things, two concepts called composition and inheritance. And inheritance is when you have like a parent class and another child class that inherits from that. So you could have something like, I don't know, a vehicle class and then a car class that inherits from the vehicle class. And maybe, you know, all vehicles have things like, I don't know, a make and a model and uh, maybe a, like a, a type of engine or some sort of propulsion 
system, whatever it is that makes it go, right? It makes it a sure. a vehicle. And then the child class, a car is going to have like a, you know, very specific kind of engine, which could, I guess, be now like an electronic engine or it could be a combustion uh, engine or something like that. But but the the parent class is like a more general concept, usually of of the child class. That's one type of of, of way to sort of delegate things that the child class can use things that are defined in the parent class to work. Yeah. The other type of delegation would be composition, which is where rather than inheriting from something, you assign another object uh, to like maybe an attribute on the on a class. So maybe you have some class that needs to incorporate logging and it needs some sort of logger. Well, rather than implementing the whole logger in this class, you can implement a logging class and then use a logger instance in the in that class to to handle the logging. So it's then delegating the task of logging to this other logging class or the, the instance of the logger that you've uh, attributed to it when you create your the instance of the of the class. But so this is the idea of delegation. How are you delegating different tasks around? And he talks about sort of four ways to to look at delegation. And I'll just go through them fairly quickly. So one way to look at delegation is the how you're sharing state. So in inheritance, a child class has access. The child class shares its whole state with the with the parent class. So it's like everything is just getting absorbed completely. So that's one one way. In in uh composition, it's you're like picking and choosing which pieces of state kind of get shared. Like you're passing something into a method on the class that's being composed. So it's you're not sharing all of your state. You're just like whatever you're are comfortable giving to it, basically. So this is the idea of of sharing state in these. The other thing is about control. So he says another way to look at the dichotomy between inheritance and composition is that of the control we have over the process. So uh, there's an idea of of control. Um, There's also relationship between two things. So the way he describes this, I think, is really good. Is it to be versus to have? So in the inheritance type of delegation, it's the to be kind of relationship. A car is a type of vehicle. Right. But in the composition, it's a to have relationship, right? A car has an engine. So maybe, uh, right, the you have a, a combustion engine class or a uh, electric engine uh, class. So that's another way to, th- to think of the difference between these two. To be yeah, versus com- to have. Kind of composing of parts and exactly of yeah. functionality. Okay. And then also the different kinds of entities that are involved in the different kind of delegation. So in inheritance, you're dealing mainly with classes. You're inheriting from some parent class. Whereas in uh, composition, you're dealing with like instances of other kinds of classes. So you, you're assigning some instance to to that that class that you're you're creating. So he just really goes into the the different kinds of delegation, inheritance versus composition. I think it's a really critical part of understanding object-oriented programming and sort of getting your head around like when should you use inheritance versus uh, composition. And most programmers are going to, uh, most experienced programmers are going to prefer composition over inheritance whenever possible. It's sort of the safest route. It it's kind of makes the most sense in most cases, but you know, you need to know when to, when to use it, when to not. So he gives some pointers in this, uh, he calls the section bad signs, but he says you're incorrectly using inheritance when there's a clash between attributes with the same name and different meanings, or you feel the need to remove methods from the child class. Hmm. Uh, you're incorrectly using composition when you have to map too many methods from the container class to the contained one, or you're composing instances but creating many class methods so that the container can access them. So it gives you some idea of when you might be doing it wrong. I think that actually is kind of a good approach to teaching it because it's sort of like, it's hard to know when to do it. So it's good to have an idea of when not to do it, Right. <laughs> I guess, right? It's kind of easier to know. I like, know you're traveling down the wrong path. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's it's sort of easier to spot like, oh, you start doing it. Oh, no, this this is not looking good. I probably need to rethink uh, the way that I'm I'm doing this. But anyways, it's a really in-depth article with lots of examples. And then this whole series is quite long. He's got uh, several articles in the in the series about object-oriented programming and even some uh, some videos that he's published uh, to YouTube. So he talks about types and classes and how to create a class, classes and instances, 
those are all the parts before this part five delegation. So if you're new to OOP, you might want to check that out before you get into this one. But honestly, I, I feel like if, if you've already got the basics of OOP down, you understand the difference between classes and instances and things like that, then jumping into this article is not going to be too difficult. Sounds like it's trying to give you lots of examples. Like I like the example they have that he created in there, the one with the windows, sort of like it kind of goes to like GUI stuff if you ever used a GUI framework. Right. And how very often are inheriting a lot of things. Like, okay, this is a button. Okay, but this one inherits from this general idea of button, but it's it has a text field inside of it too. It's like a submission button or some kind of other thing that's kind of building on top of it. And so that makes sense to inherit it that way. Or he, he uses the example of a window versus like a transparent window. It's still going to have you know, resizing methods and, you know, right. information methods and, and all these things that you feel like every instance of a window should have these things. And that, that makes sense for that type of path. But I can see how you can really start down the wrong path pretty quickly. You know, if you kind of jump down one of these methodologies and you kind of tie yourself in knots trying to fix it all and overriding everything. And <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, inheritance is one of those things, especially that can get real tricky. The, the you you develop this hierarchy when you create you know parent classes and child classes and child classes of other child classes and it can get really deep and nested and then it becomes really difficult to reason about what your code is doing and where things are actually happening and what's going on so it's it's good to know when it makes the most sense to use it but you also want to know when when you might be uh, might be time to sort of rethink how you're how you're doing stuff so yeah, definitely. My next one is is another Reddit thread. And I thought it was kind of interesting because you know, we've been focusing a lot on our episodes of having projects at the end of them. Yeah. And the idea of this thread was, okay, what are some good Python project ideas for high school students? Now, there's a caveat because it's got a long kind of initial introduction <laughs> to it. It's like, okay, well, who are we talking about? Okay, well, generally high school students might think one way or another. But in this particular case... He's saying, okay, I have, you know, going to divide them up into teams and they're going to have, you know, I have an overall number of 10 individuals. But mostly, I think the core thing that a lot of people missed in it is that these are students that have expressed interest in continuing on in their programming education at a university, potentially in CS or a related field. And so he wants some additional skills to be gathered through doing this. So uh, sending them off to, you know, do something that doesn't really kind of, he wants it to, I mean, I think any kind of project is going to help you build your skills, but I think there's different types of projects that will help you kind of think about, okay, well, do they need to learn about Git and, and doing source control? Do they need to learn a little bit more about working with an API? Um, Is it something that would be useful to kind of dive into? And so uh, I thought a lot of them, one of them that I always have liked is, uh, a text adventure <laughs> yeah, because it kind of builds on top of the idea of object-oriented programming in kind of a fun way. You are sort of integrating functions and loops and conditionals and and those sort of things. And it doesn't ever, always have to go down the route of it being like some kind of you know, D&D kind of style thing. I've heard text adventures be everything from like something that's happening with spies or could be, you know, something that's happening with the wild west or, you know, whatever you want to think of, like just kind of think of some kind of adventure that somebody could go down the lines of, and then modeling the real world, you know, it could be anything you want to create. So you have to kind of maybe give some extra parameters there, but, and also, you know, I felt that way about creating games, you know, having to manage all the different assets and so forth. Yeah. Getting into a visual one kind of gets a little more advanced, um, something like pie game or something like that you definitely need to think beyond like simple like characters and so forth. But in general, I think it's good to start there. One of the main other suggestions was about visualizations and and working with data. Again, if you have some people that express interest in, in that kind of thing, like they're interested in science and not necessarily purely CS, then I, I definitely see that, you know, creating projects around that. And there's so many great data sets that we've talked about that before, but you know, things like Kaggle that can provide, really good resources to get people started on that. But then it got into like, you know, creating a jukebox, um, you know, some kind of audio player and that could lead them to to learning about GUIs, to learning about handling files and and kind of all the different sort of interactions and potentially, you know, thinking about user interaction and having to work from there. 
I think things like Circuit Python are great for beginners, and the thing that it's sort of missing is potentially the whole source control kind of thing. You do get this sort of great interaction and in, and in, in working with hardware and building physical projects, and I think that's truly exciting. Maybe tying that in to you know an API or working with like a website or kind of like you know having that physical thing that's out there and having it interact and seeing its actions but maybe having some kind of way of it tying into data might be even more useful that somebody else could like oh i want to look at this website and see you know the results of you know what's going on with you know this automation system i set up or this you know sensor i have for soil or light or moisture or something like that yeah and so i think all that's really useful and then you know just building a website these days like if you look at the tutorials for things like django girls you're diving pretty deep in building a website with like a framework like that, you know, building like a blog engine with something like Django and it leads even to like, you know, testing and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it has a lot, it's a huge thread. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think it has a lot of really good things that are, you know, not only useful for high school students, but, you know, again, for those, those of us who are intermediate developers that want to have projects to kind of mess with and, and you know, web scrapers, bots, um, things like that. And, you can find a lot of uh, additional fodder for your own projects there, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. That's why I decided to include it in, in PyCoders is I've just felt like when I was reading through that thread, I was like, this is not just good for high school students. Like this is good for anyone that's uh, a beginner to, you know, early intermediate Python uh, developer. So yeah, there's just, there's lots of interesting ideas there. Uh, so if you're looking for a project, and need inspiration. Yeah. Uh, it's a good a good thread to peruse. <laughs> Definitely. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers a function that can help when you're working with multiple iterables in Python. It's titled Parallel Iteration with Python Zip Function. The course is based on a RealPython article by Leodanas Pozo Ramos. In the course, instructor Liam Pulsifer takes you through how to use the Python zip function for parallel iteration, how to create dictionaries on the fly using zip, how to sort multiple intervals, and more. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn the zip function and start wrangling multiple iterables to solve real-world problems. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code examples for the techniques shown. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. All right, what's up next? Uh, the next one I got is called Never Run Python in Your Downloads Folder. <laughs> and this comes from Glyph Lefkowitz, who's uh, the creator of the Twisted framework. This article on, yeah, what what happens or what bad things can happen when you run Python in your downloads folder. I'm going to just go ahead and say I've never run Python in my downloads folder. And I'm not, I don't know if that's something that some people do or, or not, but uh, the, the I think the point of the article though is not so much that it's like focusing on the downloads folder specifically. Although he does mention a like an exploit that can happen that specifically targets the downloads folder, and I guess what prompted this. But really, it's about understanding what happens when you execute Python, yeah, and what things are trusted and what things aren't trusted, and this could happen. You know, it, it pertains not just to the downloads folder, to wherever you're running Python. It's good to know what really, really happens. And so he starts off saying, Python needs a safe space to load code from. Yeah. And there are three critical assumptions embedded in Python's security model. Every entry on sys.path is assumed to be a secure location from which it is safe to execute arbitrary code. The directory where the main script is located is always on sys.path. That's kind of a key thing there. When invoking Python directly, the current directory is treated as the main script location, even when passing the minus C or minus M options. So these are the three key things to keep in mind. And again, it's not just about the downloads folder, it's about any folder you're in. When you, when you run Python and then execute some script, whatever the current working directory is, it anything in there is fair game. It's just going to say if if you're trying to run some other file in here, I'm just going to trust that it's safe and I'm just going to do it. 
Yeah. And that's really the key thing to take away from, from this article. And I think that it's something that for some reason gets overlooked when people are learning Python. It's something that I have to admit, it took me a while to sort of understand how this actually worked in, in Python or what was, uh, what was going on. Honestly, the idea of running arbitrary code felt a little odd to me at, at first and was like, wait a second, it does what? <laughs> like, it's just going to run that code in there? Like, okay, um, well, that's good to know now. That's, uh, I need to, to take those things into, into consideration. But yeah, it's something that I feel like it's overlooked a lot to, for beginners. And this also plays into something that I've, I've made the mistake of doing. It's actually how I ended up learning that this was a thing. And I've seen other people have this issue as well. And, and it, it's when you are trying to use, say, a module in the standard library, but you have in your current working directory, or maybe even the file you're trying to run is named has the same name as the module you're trying to uh, to right. to import. So like you get collisions and stuff like that. Well, what happens? Like, let's say you have a a, a file called uh, math.py in your okay. in your directory, and you've defined a couple of little math functions in there, or something or and in in another script, you you open up, you say, I, I need to use, I don't know, the pi constant from for math. So you import right. math and then try to use math.py and you might get an error saying there is like, there's no, you get a name error. There's nothing right in math called math.py because it's importing your math module that's in your directory and not the one from the standard library. So there's like this precedence, right? Of what, what happens where and what gets loaded first. So that can be surprising. I think another thing that's surprising is when people, you know, they download, I don't know, Maybe they have a like a well we could we could use the same math example. There you have a math.py file. It's your main script, and then you import math into it from the standard library. Well now you're gonna get import errors because it's like just all sorts of weird stuff is is going on. So you get some some strange stuff happening. And when when people run into this, it's like it's super confusing, but it all boils down to the way that where where Python is looking for things and the fact that hey, it, like there's an order and that current working directory or the directory where your main script is located, those are going to get put on the path and it's going to have a higher precedence than say something in the in the standard library. And so one of the, I guess, bad things that can happen with this that it can actually be bad is if you, there's this uh, category of attacks called DLL planting. And that's where certain browsers can be tricked into putting files with arbitrary file names into the downloads folder without any interaction from you while you're you're browsing and say for example you're on a website and you, you there's this dll planting attack occurs and it puts a pip.py file in your downloads folder mm. and that pip.py file does something really bad i don't know it steals some data or it deletes your hard drive or I don't know, it does something terrible. Well, if you're in your downloads folder and you go to check something and you go, okay, python-m pip install, whatever. Well, you're just telling Python to run the pip.py file that's in your downloads folder. Because it's going to find that first. Because it's going to find that first. It's in the current working directory and it's you're running it python dash m pip you're running it as a module so it's going to say okay oh look i found this pip.py before it ever even tries to go to the pip the actual pip is oh i found this pip.py and it's just going to execute it because it's going to assume that it's that it's safe and then whatever is in that pip.py it's going to happen in the you know you're going to your hard drive is going to get wiped out your data is going to get stolen something something bad is <laughs> right. going to happen so that's the that's the article. Never run Python in your downloads folder. It's a catchy title, but really the important thing to in this article is just knowing what happens when you run when you run Python and how it treats code. That you know, if it's in your current working directory, it's fair game. Whatever it is, it's going to run. It's going to assume that it's safe. Kind of goes back to that idea of like names are hard, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, using these really generic names. Uh, for things again, that's a theme that I've heard. You know, the guys on Python Bytes talk about not using utils. 
Um, right. But, yeah. You know, this whole idea of like, you know, creating a, a proper name and thinking about the, the namespaces of, okay, what exists, you know, it even goes back to keywords, right? You know, like this idea that understanding structurally as a, you know, beginner or an intermediate Python person, like <laughs> these are things that are pretty big pitfalls that you can fall in with not realizing it. I've, you know, I've seen people create a, you know, a, a request.py file or something like that. Exactly. Um, because that's what they're doing. And it's like, well, okay, but yeah. <laughs> in, now you've renamed something that you're importing and you're, you know, and so you're getting this whole like collision of so forth. And so it, I, I haven't seen anybody say, okay, this is the best solution, but the idea is like, okay, come up with unique names for your code that is, you know, going to be run first, right? It has that higher priority. So that it definitely... <laughs> What's it say in the Zen of Python? <laughs> Here it is. Namespaces are one honking great idea. Let's do more of those. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So I guess that leads us to talking a little bit about projects. So the project I want to talk about is called Present. And it's a presentation tool. Uh, kind of like allowing you to do slides inside of the terminal. So it's a terminal-based presentation tool with colors and effects. You can play these pre-recorded code blocks called a Codeo, and that allows you to show off, you know, you as you're working through steps inside of programming if you wanted to. It uses Markdown, so you just save a simple .md Markdown file. So that includes, you know, the standard Markdown things for headers, um, the normal things for inline code, links, quoting, lists. But you can also just indicate the change to another slide, instead of having a separate file, you just put three dashes in a row and those three dashes indicate moving on to the next slide. And then along with the uh, Codios and the other things I mentioned, you can have styling for the background and the foreground colors. And then there's also the ability to put these uh, slides with effects on them. And the effects are all done in ASCII, which is really kind of cool looking of fireworks or explosions or a version of like the matrix kind of coming down. It's pretty slick. And so it's a neat way just to, if you wanted to do a talk and do a quick set of slides for it, you could do that all inside of this terminal tool, all written in Python, uses another Python library called Askematics. So check it out. So what do you got for a project? Yeah, this is a fun one. It's a mini Raspberry Pi Boston Dynamics inspired robot. The creator calls this the Spot Micro. So I don't know if if you're listening, if you've seen this Boston Dynamics, they've created this like robot dog that I guess has applications in things like security and maybe even like military or or things like that. But but it's this. I don't know if you really call it cute. The actual like robot dog. The, <laughs> the micro dog is actually kind of kind of cute. Um, <laughs> The, the big one is yeah sort of terrifying actually in a lot of ways but uh, depending on depending on what they have it r- running out there and doing yeah <laughs> yeah but, exactly but cool nonetheless i mean it's uh it's a huge feat in in robotics so this project is taking a raspberry pi 3 some servos an lcd panel and thingiverse 3d printed mic- spot microframe so that's you can actually buy this 3D printed frame that like all this goes into and building a controllable robot out of this that mimics the spot Boston Dynamics spot robot dog. So the code is written in C++ and Python and there's a GitHub repository uh, that's got all the code in it as well as like very detailed instructions on setting everything up as well as some ideas for like future work to expand on the on the project yeah. like incorporating lidar developing autonomous motion incorporating a camera or webcam uh so they could do like basic image classification and things like that so yeah there's i mean there's a lot to a lot of things to expand on on here and it just looks like it'd be a really fun project to to build you know over a i don't know if it'd be a weekend project <laughs> for you know yeah. maybe if you're really good with hardware and and really for me this would probably be like you know a month <laughs> probably fooling <laughs> around every weekend to, to get something but there's a cool video it was featured in the raspberry pi blog okay and that's the article that we've linked to in in pi coders but uh there's a cool youtube video they've got in that article that's got you know the demo and um, he's in his 
living room and he's got it walking around and he's controlling it from his from his laptop. So I took a little bit of a browse through the code and it looks like most of the control API is in Python. Okay. Whereas a lot of the like the actual I guess with like the hardware control, like what's actually controlling the hardware, most of that is in, in C++, but then the actual, you know, where you're orchestrating things and sending it commands, a lot of that is uh, is in Python. So uh, it's also a cool project then, I guess, to see those two languages integrated with each other, right? Like you've got those things uh, talking and everything. So yeah, just a really fun, fun project. If I had a lot of free time, I would, I would love to tackle this one. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder what the price of the parts and stuff. Um, the Raspberry Pi, I can imagine, is pretty inexpensive, but I, I've never bought any <laughs> robot other parts and so forth, motors and servos and things like that. Yeah, that's a good question. My guess is most of it is pretty reasonable. Okay, because I, of its size? Because of the size and everything. And the the 3D printed thing, you you down. I guess it's free to download. Yeah, it's free to download the all the files, but then you would need access to a 3D printer and the materials to actually go okay. uh, print this, which I think, you know, a lot of public libraries nowadays have some stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And there, I think there's like maker spaces. And if you're in a, a larger city, you can usually find somewhere that you can, they'll have the material and you just pay for the material and some time to go use the the machine. So you know, depending on where you are, I guess that that's a big part of it. Like right? if you're, located in a big city, then you probably <laughs> actually right. have fairly easy access to a 3D printer. Although I don't know how that works in the, the time of uh, coronavirus, maybe. <laughs> There's some re- that makes it a little bit more difficult. But um, yeah, but yeah, it just looks like a really fun project. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. See you later. Next up, it's my conversation with Sadie Parker about creating transcripts for RealPython's video courses. We discuss how you can take advantage of all the features and functions these transcripts and closed captions provide. And we also talk a little bit about how she's using Python in the process of editing and creating these transcripts. So here's that conversation. Hi, Sadie. I wanted to welcome you to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks. Happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It's really cool to have you coming on not only the show, but also to come on the team to help us with, you know, creating these transcripts for RealPython. Maybe you could give us a little idea of what the project entails and what you've been doing. Yeah, sure. So it's honestly been like quite an honor to work on these transcripts and captions. I mean, RealPython is like a really great resource for me. I do some learning of Python on the side of my other projects. And so it's always been something in my peripheral vision for the past uh, couple of years. And it's really fun to work on some of this video content. Yeah. And yeah, I, I started with you guys about... Is it like a month and a half ago now? Yeah. Yeah, we've been plugging away at the existing video courses. There's a lot, and we've been... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) about a year and a half of them, so... (laughs) Yeah, we've been, I think, handling transcripts for new courses really well, and everything's going smoothly. It's, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, so I wanted to maybe go through questions people might have about them, or like reasons, like, I guess maybe the... First one to start with would be why is RealPython adding transcripts to the video? Yeah, so I think first off it just adds a lot of a lot of value and it makes the video courses a ton more accessible. It definitely helps with searchability and findability for the courses and for specific course content inside each course, so that's really cool. I don't know, but what I heard was that from you guys is that there was quite a lot of um, requests for transcripts and captions just because of how much it aids with learning Yeah, when watching video courses. Yeah. I wanted to kind of dive into a couple of those things there. So the accessibility part, again, I think kind of getting this feedback through channels from Dan, he was saying that multiple people had requested, partly it could be they wanted to use this visual medium, but they couldn't hear the instructor speaking. But now having the words there along with it as closed captions, and then also, it's really kind of neat. The whole transcript is contained below each of the videos there that somebody can kind of go through and just read through what's happening. So there's an accessibility thing for, again, somebody who can't necessarily hear those things, but also if somebody wanted to go back and, what did that person say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it can actually go and look through all the stuff that's happening there. Or if your English isn't your first language, somebody can kind of look through it. And I think that is huge for the accessibility. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then one of the other things I was thinking about that that you said there is you said searchability. How has that changed like with having the transcripts? Um, so now that there's like transcripts below each video course or the ones that are coming out, it makes it quite possible, I believe, to search the site with the keywords of what you're hoping to learn about and videos that specifically mention that specific topic will show up in the search results and it'll also more easily show up in Google search results. And another part just within the courses themselves, like if you'd like to skip forward to a particular part in a video, if there's just one topic you're hoping to zoom in on. Right. Something you're stuck on. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can you can just um, head over to that particular subsection on that video course and like what I would use would be control F and just look for those words and you can click on the transcript and it'll bring you right to that that time in the video. So that's really helpful. Yeah, I think that kind of brings us to that idea of the navigation part of it. Mm-hmm. That is kind of a neat feature inside of it. It's not a static set of you know words that's on the page. They actually interact with the video itself, acting as a way that you can, if you use that search functionality, if you see a sentence that, you know, say maybe you're looking at something about lists or something like that, and there was a particular method that was mentioned and you search for that method, you'll see the full sentence. And as you click on it, it jumps to that section of the video and repeats that whole sentence. And so it's a way of navigating very quickly. Yeah, really helpful. Yeah, I I think it's going to be really useful for learning. And then the other feature that's added with that is that that's a link, right? So that you can actually share, because you've actually done it for me. I've asked you to, to, since I'm working on the video courses, you've been able to say, okay, this person's mentioning a link here. Mm-hmm. And so I've been adding in this other section of the text that goes below the videos, this area called the description. If there are links that the video instructor mentions, I can then you're like, give me this highlight and it's like literally like time code almost like exactly where in the video I need to go look for it. Yeah. Those links are really helpful. They've been super helpful for me, like in trying to standardize kind of the syntax and the formatting for these transcripts, like in asking for feedback from the rest of the team, like those links are very helpful for just getting everybody's eyes on one portion and trying to decide together what's both the most readable and the most accurate way to to transcribe this particular idea so that it's, you know, both reflecting the instructor's intent and accurate to the course content and emphasizing, you know, the main ideas behind the course. Yeah, I love those links. They're They're really nice. Yeah, I thought about maybe we could talk a little bit about the process that that you're using. There's this whole extra layer and partly of what your work is of taking what's being automatically generated and then making sure that it's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a big part of what you're doing? Yeah. So we get these auto-generated transcripts uh, from Rev AI and they're they're really good, you know, especially especially non-technical speech. They're quite accurate as far as word content. Yeah. And then what comes after that is just going through and making sure that for the non-technical bits, just making sure that the punctuation accurately represents what's being said so that if you if you don't hear the audio, you're getting the right meaning from the words that are there. Yeah. And then for the more technical parts, we're going through and making sure that when when a particular verb is a function, that we're making sure to represent that it's a function. When a object is an object, we're going with the the real Python formatting standards and making sure it's being represented as an object because the words behind behind Python and behind programming of objects and methods and variable names and everything, they exist within like English syntax, but they also touch on ideas specific to programming. So it's pretty important to make sure that that we're representing that in the transcript so that they are helpful and like as good a learning resource as possible. So yeah, a lot of work goes into that, just making sure that, that that's accurate. Yeah, I can tell like <laughs> the, the amount of kind of back and forths over the last, you know, month or so of like, okay, well, this is how I think it should be represented, you know, as code. Um, this is what I think will make the most sense as far as like what the instructor is trying to, to pinpoint. And having to kind of even bring those people in to say, okay, yes, is this what you meant? And and again, most of the video courses are built based upon articles. There's there's some re- research that can happen there, but very often the, the instructor's adding new content or adding new concepts to it. So it's kind of, you know, a whole team of people that you have to kind of rope and wrangle to to make sure that 
this is you know coming across as the point that it's going to make the most sense to the person reading mm-hmm. those transcripts as they're moving along. So as you start this process, what are the tools that you're using and what's the process that you're taking to to create these? Yeah, so uh, we start off with these VTT files and um, basically we're just comparing it against the video and audio that they were generated against and to speed up the editing process and keep everything consistent. I've got some different little macros and workflows uh, for the most commonly replaced words or the most commonly misrepresented words from the auto-generated ones. That's nice. Yeah, it's fun. It's actually really fun. It's probably by one of my more favorite parts of the process, just going through the transcripts afterwards and, and checking to see, like, what did we change this time? And sometimes you find some pretty funny, uh, pretty funny auto-generated words in there that really just don't belong in a technical tutorial. <laughs> yeah. So it's fun to pick those out and make sure that, you know, they don't they don't get by next time. But yeah, for those for those steps, I'm using um, the Python Red Regex package. I don't know if it's pronounced re or re, but that goes through and does a bunch of substitutions for me on the VTT files. And then I've got a couple little. Uh, I do the actual caption file editing in Sublime because there's some really helpful little snippets and plugins I have in there for making sure that vocab is consistent and speeding up any commonly used words. So yeah, it's a it's a fun process. It's enjoyable. That's cool that you're using Python to uh <laughs> to to edit these things. That's very cool. Yeah, it's fun. There's um the fun thing about transcription is that there really are a lot of open source projects around transcription and captioning because it is such a a technical process and people are always trying to speed it up. So there's a really nice little community online working on transcription and captioning outside of the, you know, the big guys doing the auto-generated caption stuff. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, that's a, there's this whole field in data science of looking at text. The world has shifted to, to so much video and, and audio resources. So I can imagine that being able to get your hands on the, the text part of it is is pretty crucial. So that's neat. Is there a particular package you'd want to share? Well, I use, I mean, there's a couple of Python packages that I haven't used on this project. There's, I think, there's PyCert as one package. There's another one just called CERT, S-R-T, for it's a popular subtitle um, file type. And there's WebVTT for these VTT files. Okay. Yeah, those are those are mainly just for parsing the files and changing them into different formats. Nice. Yeah, those are it's an interesting VTT is an interesting format because it has the sort of the time code sort of above it. it. I mean, it's mainly a text file, but it has this very specific ways that the video has been broken down, and mm-hmm. I could see it needing to make sure that you don't break that format <laughs> as you mm-hmm. as you as you apply it. So yeah, yeah, it really doesn't like being broken. There's a whole there's a whole little history of these types of files, and I I think people like VTT the best. I think it's the most elegant one we've got so far okay and again i don't think we mentioned it but the kind of the how of like how somebody can use these every new course that's coming out from us every brand new video course has these already ready to go in them and you can access them just right below the video there'll be a tab that says transcript and then also the video player has a closed caption button and the captions will appear right below the video inside there, but it's something you can kind of turn on and off. Mm-hmm. I like how the captions move up and down a little bit if if you move your hand toward the controls. So in general, they're keeping the, <laughs> the captions at the bottom set of the screen. Yeah, exactly. And then also, uh, I think that there's a setting you can, you can um, go to your profile settings and make sure that if captions are available for that video, they'll automatically be turned on. Yeah which is also pretty helpful. Again, even if you're not, say, you are a native English speaker, in that particular case, then you may want to watch something quicker. You know, I've done that before. I definitely listen to podcasts faster (laughs) and other types of audio content. And so sometimes you may want to speed things up and the captions could potentially help you absorb some of that faster. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the reverse, you know, and again, depending on your fluency, it's something that you can kind of use and repeat and it's i think it's just going to really help 
<laughs> help with learning in general. Mm -hmm. This is kind of unrelated, but um, a friend of mine was talking about how they use this uh, subtitle plugin. Maybe it's with Netflix. I'm not sure, but it's kind of like a it's a foreign language learning aids. Okay, it gives you like um, your native language and also your the language you're trying to learn. It gives you the subtitle for both of those, which sounds really cool. Oh, stacks them somehow. I think so. That's what they said, but. What I'm trying to get at is just I think subtitles are like really helpful for yeah, learning language and then also just yeah, getting a better idea of what the content is. So here you're potentially learning two two languages, right? It could be that English <laughs> yeah. is not your your standard language <laughs> and the second could be, you know, hey, I'm trying to immerse myself in Python. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> and so um which is something I've kind of on a theme with I have an interview with Michael Kennedy coming up and we talk a little bit about that idea of using podcasts and other mediums and things like that to sort of immerse yourself into learning a language, in this case, Python. Interesting. Yeah. When you think about it, like learning Python at all, like all the programming languages that I've been like exposed to are all very English centric. So just learning a programming language is kind of immersing yourself in English. It's pretty, yeah, <laughs> pretty crazy to think about, which I think yeah, it's something I was thinking about today when Dan and I talked like a month and a half ago about transcripts and like future goals of the captions. He mentioned a dream of having some, you know, foreign language captions for these subtitles yeah. as well one day, which would be really cool. And I was thinking about today about, um, you know, just how we are treating Python in these uh, transcripts versus, you know, non-programming language. Yeah. And we are formatting it differently, which is kind of not exactly standard for captions and subtitles in general, even for technical videos. But I was thinking how helpful that would be for foreign language translations, making sure that the Python itself is, you know, wrapped in its own code blocks to make sure that any sort of auto translation isn't translating those variable names as well. It's really cool. Yeah, it would know like where not to step <laughs> as it kind of mm -hmm. as it parses through that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I hope that's something that we can add. This is a, a free upgrade, I guess, for everyone who has a video subscription account. And even if you're, you know, just perusing through Real Python, um, you can see the transcripts to get an idea of if that's something that you're interested in and, and you know, getting a subscription. So I think it's going to be a nice way to add it. And I think we were just trying to do the numbers here that we have ten of the newer courses already done and then going back into the back catalog and so it's approaching about 20 courses at the time of this recording mm -hmm. that will have transcripts ready to go which is really cool and of course you know you're working hard on them and i'm reviewing and <laughs> trying to uh, stay up to date with what, what what you're finishing as we keep going along yeah there's a, a whole pipeline on top of your pre-existing video production pipeline yeah <laughs> yeah so, but I'm excited to do it. I, again, I'm excited about the feature. And I, I want to hear from people that they want to provide feedback about it. Please let us know what you think and, and how, you know, if you're using them in a kind of interesting way, that would be really neat to hear too. But it's something that we're excited about and we're feeling like it's going to help us create better content all the time. Yeah. Feedback would be great. Like if anybody has any, um, any thoughts on the transcripts or if anybody notices anything that's ambiguous or inconsistent, like leaving comments on the site where you would normally leave it on the course is going to be really helpful. Or, you know, just, I believe there's some submit feedback buttons as well that people could use. Yeah. And I, I again, I, I know that taking those extra steps of actually editing <laughs> what's getting automatically generated is uh, really helping with the understandability and again, and focusing the thing, the elements that are code the different ways that people colloquially uh, mention <laughs> different features inside of stuff. Um, things like you may have always just seen it in print and never necessarily heard it pronounced before, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, things like API or um, GUI dunder methods or all these kinds of weird things that people have out there that you uh, hear inside of Python that are yeah. uh, specific <laughs> to the language. Yeah. Pretty fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show and, and talking to me about this stuff and hopefully hear from you again for another update soon. Yeah, that would be fun. Thanks, Chris. I want to thank David Amos and Sadie Parker for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. 
And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>